So good to be with you guys this morning. Um, glad that you guys love talking to each other. That's a good thing. Uh, my name's Victor, and I'm one of the pastors here, and um, it's a joy that I get to preach from God's Word. Um, before I start, before I read our text, I'll just let you into my life a little bit. I sat with my last surviving grandparent last night in Kansas City and probably saw her for the last time. She's in hospice. And um, yeah, that's just where I'm at. That's where my heart is at. I think that's where many of your hearts are at. You've travailed in the valley of the shadow of death for a long time. And you need a good word from the Lord to sustain you for the next hour or two. Um, So if you would pray for me, um, I'd appreciate that. But we'll be in Luke chapter 13 this morning. Luke chapter 13, we'll be looking at the first nine verses. Luke chapter 13. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you all will likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No. I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and put on manure. Then, if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So we've been considering what it would mean for Grace Chapel to practice the way of Jesus. What would it look like if we became apprentices of this first century rabbi who was both God and man? What if we followed him around on those dirt roads, went to parties with him, watched him interact with our neighbors? What if we sat and listened to his words, did the things that he did and became like him? To do so, we've been looking at different phrases that Jesus spoke during his time on earth that that are recorded in the Gospels. The first week, you might remember, we we heard about Jesus' invitation to come and see. This glad-hearted welcome and summons to observe him in his ways to see if what he says about himself is actually true. Which inevitably leads us into the realm of curiosity, Right? It, we find that we, we whole, he wholeheartedly receives our questions and our doubts as we ask and seek and knock. 
And it just so happens that that's what we find the crowds before Jesus doing in Luke chapter 13, asking, seeking, knocking. What questions are they asking? In verses 1 through 5, the people are wanting to know what Jesus thinks about two recent and tragic events. The first one they, uh, they mention is about the Roman gover- governor Pilate, how he, in cold blood, disrupted the worship of some Jewish pilgrims from Galilee and mixed their blood with the blood of the sacrifices that they were offering in the temple. It's pretty messed up. The second event is about a tragic accident that had happened in Jerusalem. A tower that was located on the wall surrounding Jerusalem had fallen suddenly, and it killed 18 people. Jesus recognizes, though, as as he listens to these people's good, honest questions, he recognizes an assumption held by many Jews at the time. And that assumption was essentially that bad things happen to bad people. Bad things happen to bad people. That these people who were tragically killed, they must have done something, something horrific to deserve God's quick and decisive judgment. And we see this elsewhere in the Gospels. In John chapter 9, Jesus' disciples, again, they're asking, seeking, knocking. They come up to him and and they see this, this man who was born blind and they ask him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents? That he was born blind. Can you relate to that? Man, like when we, like the crowds questioning Jesus, come face to face with the harshest of life that it has to offer, it reveals just the hidden thoughts inside of us, right? Some of us think that God would never judge us. He's just not that kind of God. And so um, there's no real need for us to change, to repent, because we must not be as bad as those people, those people upon whom tragedy fell so unexpectedly. And some of us think that all God ever does is judge. And so we walk around with our heads bowed low, waiting for the shoe to drop, waiting for the tower to fall on us. And we have this view of God that if you were to poke him, the first thing that would come out would be hot-headed anger and wrath and judgment. Well, I think that this passage has words from Jesus that will shock both of us. So we're going to ask this question together this morning. How does Jesus talk about judgment? That's the question we're going to ask. Let me pray. Jesus, uh, your book is open before us, and we have many questions. And we need answers. We need strength. Uh, Because stuff is happening around us, and it reveals just the nasty things that are there inside of us, and we don't know what to do with them. So would you show us? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this question, how does Jesus talk about judgment? Well, the first answer is this. He challenges our assumptions about who will be judged. He challenges our assumptions about who will be judged. So look at verses 2 and 4. 
how Jesus responds to their questions. He asks, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? And then another question in verse 4. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? Now we need to pause here. We need to pause here for a second because how does Jesus respond to the crowds asking, seeking, knocking? How does he respond to the way that their self-righteousness is revealed in their questions? He doesn't stand up and say at them, red in the face, you're wrong, repent. He doesn't do that. I'm sure you've seen other people do that in his name, but Jesus, our king, does not do that. No, what does he do? He starts with questions. He starts with questions, and there's a lot here in his questions, so let's look more closely. First, the repetition of the word all. He says it four times in verses 2, 3, 4, and 5. All, 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 all. What is he saying about the all? First, that they're sinners. They're sinners. And, um, yeah, it's there in verse 2. And, you know, some of us have grown numb to this word because it's been co-opted in so many ways. But the word simply means someone who's going the wrong direction. Someone who misses the mark, who's crossed a boundary beyond what is acceptable. Second, he says that the all are also offenders. Do you see it there in verse 4? And this word in the Greek is the same word used in its noun form in the Lord's Prayer. That part in Matthew chapter 6 where Jesus says, uh, teaches his disciples to say, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. He's saying that the all are likewise debtors, that they have this negative balance because of the way that they've lived, the choices they've made. They owe something to someone else. Essentially, he's saying that they too have a judge, someone outside of themselves who will take into account the sum of their lives. And the haunting reality that Jesus' question is getting at is that if they were to meet this judge today, if they were to meet this judge, like those Galilean pilgrims or those people upon whom the tower fell, they would be found wanting. If this is the place we find ourselves, you know, one unexpected moment away from facing the judge of the universe and finding ourselves just utterly unprepared, then what do we do? Well, thankfully, the questions Jesus asked the disciples are rhetorical, so he gives us the answers to these questions. So look at verses 3 and 5. He says in verse 3, No, I tell you, but unless you repent— which it, it literally means change your mind. Change your mind. You will all likewise perish. And in verse 5, no, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. The, the, the repetition, it should grab our attention because it, it just adds to the seriousness and the certainty of what Jesus is saying. And what would it mean to perish? 
He's not saying that, hey, from now on, you need to be careful when you're walking around tall structures. He's not saying you shouldn't come to church because you're just going to be murdered in cold blood. No, he's not saying that. Jesus here is referring to the death that is worse than physical death. He's referring to the death that is worse than the end of our physical bodies. To perish here would mean to separate us from that which gives its true life, that which makes us flourish and grow, which would result in our undoing and the death of not just our bodies, but our souls. So maybe we need to take a breather here at this point. Uh, Because this, you know, it might be the hardest of Jesus' sayings for our contemporary world, for for our contemporary ears to stomach, because we don't like the idea of a God who holds us accountable, do we? We say things like, I should be free to live my life the way that I want to live it. As long as it doesn't hurt anybody, right? This is why I can't stand organized religion. Because their God is judgy, and their people are even judgier. What have you just done in that moment? Uttering those words with that statement, you've made yourself a judge. Those people are so judgy. Okay, judge. Whether we realize it or not, we all assume the role of a judge a thousand times a day. In micro ways, in macro ways, we look down on other people. And that's why, that's why the Christian faith should be the most sane, non-judgmental group out of anybody out there. Because their Bible says things like this. Therefore, you have no excuse, oh man. Every one of you who judges for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. Because you, the judge, I mean, I just hear him, the judge, practice the very same things. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? And if we can't escape having some sort of judge, somebody outside of us who's going to hold us up accountable, don't we want a kind one? Don't we want a kind judge? So with his questions, Jesus challenges our assumptions about who will be judged. When death strikes a community, it reveals how easily we assume the position of judge and place ourselves above others. We downplay our own wickedness and highlight the sin of other people. And by doing so, we're trying to let ourselves off the hook. We look at the travails of others and we tell ourselves, man, God must be pleased with me. But Jesus is saying that no one is off the hook. Death is the great equalizer. Jesus is leveling the playing field. He's saying that these tragedies, they aren't an opportunity for you to point the finger. 
No, what they're meant to do is be this sobering moment for you to contend with the fragility of life and the fact that you have a judge. And that one day, maybe today, maybe today, because Jesus' words are so urgent here, maybe today you will meet him and you'll have to give an account. And apart from repentance, from turning around and going in the right direction, you and I will be found wanting. So, do you guys remember David Gennaro? No, you probably don't. He, he's the lawyer from the original film, the original Jurassic Park. And he's this guy, it's not just because he's a lawyer, but he looks down on everyone. And you know, he's there. This is like one of my favorite childhood films, which my parents let me watch Jurassic Park when I was like five years old, and I had horrifying nightmares. <laughs> but it's, it's shaped my imagination. Um, and this guy, he just looks down on everybody. He's there, you know, to expose um, Jurassic Park as this fruitless adventure. He's working for the thing to fail, to fall apart. And you know, he waltzes around in his expensive um, hiking clothes and his, his hundred dollar haircut, his nose turned up. But when he sees that the dinosaurs are real, he doesn't respond to this new experience in an appropriate way. He doesn't respect their beauty and power. This thing that should sober him up, help him see himself in a truer light, but instead he remains in his pride. He even seeks to like make money off of these dinosaurs. He wants to to make the park only available to the rich and powerful people like himself. And then the moment that he he never dreamt would find him does. It finds him, and only when, he, when it's too late, when he's just sitting there, vulnerable, small, exposed, when he's come face to face with the king of all dinosaurs, the T-Rex, only then does he get it. But it's too late. Now, am I saying that God is like a T-Rex? No. T-Rexes are terrifying, and they eat people. But I am saying that God is a king. He's a king who deserves your life and your worship. And for those of us who think that God is just, you know, he's just too busy judging the really bad guys that he'll be a while, or maybe he'll never make his way to me. Jesus says, you need to change your mind. You need to change your mind. You have an inflated view of yourself and a small view of God. And judgment will come like a T-Rex in the night. This text emphasizes the urgency that repentance requires because life is fragile. We don't know what will happen tomorrow, tonight, or in the next hour. So turn around in the right direction. Now, keep a short account. Now, ask those you've done harm to for forgiveness. Make reparations for the damage you've done. Stop dilly-dallying in the same old sins. Confess, confess. Stop, stop comparing yourself to others and engaging in social 
social media that only inflates your pride and makes you look down on the other side, it will never make you feel happy. Plus, it just doesn't make you fun to be around. So go to church, commit to a daily confession, take an honest look at yourself every single day, and get friends who will be honest with you when you can't be honest with yourself. Do something. Live like you only have today. If verses 1 through 5 communicate the urgency of repentance, the the universality of judgment, verses 6 through 9, they portray the bewildering patience of this God who, who says he's our judge. So what is, how does Jesus talk about judgment? Our second answer is this. He tells stories that emphasize God's patience. And in these verses, uh, Jesus enters into the realm of story. He tells a parable, which, what does a parable do? It requires the participation of the listener. So, because when you're listening to a story, you have to, to kind of suspend your own belief right? And experience and enter into the story, the world of the storyteller. So what is Jesus trying to communicate, communicate here? First, Jesus portrays God's people like a plant, a fig tree. So look at verse 6. And he told this parable, a man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. This is not new. Israel um, had been had been portrayed as a plant throughout the Old Testament. The problem, however, is that the fig tree isn't doing what it's supposed to do. The owner of the vineyard is frustrated with the fig tree because for three years now, it hasn't made any fruit. And not only that, it's using up the ground. And it's stealing nutrients from other plants. And so the solution to the vineyard owner? Cut it down. However, The gardener, the gardener, the gardener sees some sort of potential in this little plant. He intercedes for the plant and says to the owner, look in verse 8, let it alone this year also. Not only does the gardener ask the owner of the vineyard to let let it alone, he offers to take the care of the fig tree into his own hands. He wants to break up the ground around it so that water can get to the roots. He wants to put on manure and fertilize it. Give it, give it the nutrients that it needs. Get his own hands dirty and into the life of the plant so that it can grow. And it'd be easy to overlook this gardener, but consider how out of the world the gardener's patience is towards this plant. And as we listen to Jesus' story and suspend our own beliefs about what we think God is like, Jesus asks us to consider this gardener. He, he sets this patient worker of the ground before us, and he says, this is my heart. This is how I look at you. This is how I am towards you. The very fruitlessness of your life stirs not my wrath, but my compassion. My patience, my long-suffering patience. So guess what? I'm going to take my time with you. I'm going to break up the ground because I see in you what your life could be. What your life could be if you would just turn and respond to my love. 
This is from Romans chapter 2. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Sorry, that's from Second Peter. God's patience, his slowness to move to judgment, it is out of this world. In our divided world, in our divided world, we think that there are a lot of people out there who are just using up the ground. And, and our first instinct is to chop them down, cut it down, get, get rid of them, silence them, start new. And when everyone else's patience has run thin, when everybody's hand is, is ready with the axe to just go at one another, God's patience is still fresh, his hand still stayed, his hope that you'll come to your senses, repent, and choose that which is, is truly life is still strong. So God's patience and his kindness, it should, it should surprise you. It should surprise you. Notice, however, that there is a time limit to his care and this expectation that the tree will respond. So look in verse 9. If it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. And the parable, it ends. It just ends. Open-ended. What happens to the plant? What happens to the, the fig tree? Will it respond to the patience of God? And it just begs the question to the listener, right? Will you, will you respond in time to the patience and kindness of God in the person of Jesus? So I was sitting at a stoplight the other day, as one does in Lincoln. (laughs) And I was first in line. And in my boredom and inability to be present, uh, I take out my phone. I know, like, you don't judge me. Um, I take out my phone and I start looking at some text messages. And I, I must have lost track of time, probably because I was just laughing at some weird gift that Isaac Terwilliger sent me. Because the next time I look up, I see the light turn from yellow to red again. <laughs> I know some of you have had that moment. And uh, I look up immediately in my rear view mirror, and there's a line of cars behind me. No one honked at me. No one honked at me. I mean, it's like a, a daily pleasure if I can honk at someone and just wake them up from their iPhone slumber at a, re- like at a green light. You know, it's like a personal joy, but they didn't honk I had sat through the entire green light. And I was shocked. I was shocked. Um, I was astounded at their patience. And it made me not want to take it for granted again. So I put the phone down. And I made myself ready for the time when that light turned green. Let's be honest, I was just watching the other light turn red, and my my foot was already on the gas pedal. I was halfway through the intersection when that light turned green. For those of us who think that all, all God does is judge, who are painfully convinced that every moment God thinks you're just using up the ground, and he's ready, 
He's ready to cut you down. Consider this gardener. Consider him. Consider Jesus, his patience, his patience and care towards you. Because, friends, shaming or guilting yourself into change, it never works. Trust me, I have tried it. I've tried it. I've tried the cut it down approach to my own sin, and it's never led to a godly repentance. It's never led to a broken heart. It's never led to me placing myself in the gardener's hands. It's only the bewildering kindness and patience of God that's going to change you. So maybe this question, how has God shown his kindness to me? Maybe that's a question that you just need to consider at the end of every single day. To conclude, the interaction between the gardener and the plant, it's intimate. It's disruptive, right? Like the plant isn't doing anything to earn the care it receives. In fact, it's costing the owner of the vineyard valuable land, valuable time. And this gardener, he glad-heartedly takes the cost upon himself. He takes it upon himself. His gut response isn't to get rid of this plant. And he doesn't even stand aloof with his arms crossed and say, Hey, plant, get your life together. Bear fruit, plant. No, what does he do? What does he do? He, he draws near to the plant. He gets down by it. He, he gets his hands into the mess and the muck of the plant's life. He draws near to you so that life might spring up in you. So even as the crowds were yelling, crucify him, cut him down. Jesus' first words after being nailed to the cross were, Father, forgive them. It's the same word that the gardener takes up in Luke 13. Father, leave them alone. Let them alone for one more year. Give them a little more time. Maybe they'll respond to my kindness. Maybe they'll respond to my care that I'm giving to them on this cross. How will you respond? How will you respond to him? Turn to him. Trust in him today. Place yourself in the gardener's hands. Place yourself in the hands of this patient Savior, Jesus. Let me pray. King Jesus, change the way that we see you. Uh, For those of us in this room who think you would never judge us, help us see you as the king and judge that you are, the good king who we don't want to, to find ourselves before, before you unexpectedly. And then for those of us who, who are riddled by guilt and shame, we just think that all you ever do is judge. Help us see the patience of Jesus, your kindness towards us, and help us also repent and trust fully in, in your gospel of grace, that it is true that your mercy does overwhelm our sin, that you have in fact died and risen again so that we might bear fruit, we might bear fruit 
live a life that is fruitful, not just for us, but for our neighbors, the world, for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.